You are listening to John DeYard's Life Spa, your premier source for health news and Ayurveda, where modern science meets ancient wisdom. Hi, everyone. Welcome to LifeSpa.com, where we prove ancient medical wisdom with modern science. I'm Dr. John DeYard, and tonight we have a really special guest, uh, Sean Korn, who I'm so excited to have here. And I want to just read her, her bio just for a sec. Um, she's an internationally celebrated yoga teacher known for her impassioned activism, unique self-expression, and inspiring style of teaching. Featured on commercials, magazines, NPR, Oprah.com, Sean now uh, utilizes her, natural, her national platform to bring awareness to global humanitarian issues. In 2005, she was named the National Yoga Ambassador for AIDS, for Youth AIDS. In 2013, she was given a Global Green International Environmental Leadership Award in 2007, she's been training leaders of activism through the co-founded organization Off the Mat and Into the World, something that I'm super passionate about talking about today because, you know, in Ayurvedic medicine, we talk about four words to describe all of Vedic science, which is translated yoga style kuru kamani means establish a being and perform action. And this is why I'm so happy to have you here is because the idea of established being and pulling back the bow and getting still and getting calm is such a critical piece of the puzzle, but it's only half of the equation. The other half of the equation is shooting the arrow and letting the action happen. And this is what you have done like no one else has done before. So I, I, just, I just think the world of what you're doing and how everybody needs to get that because everybody teaches yoga, breathing, meditation, and you're done. No, you're not done. All you've done there is just pull back the bow. And it's a very important piece, but taking the action is the second half of the equation that no one seems to talk about except for you. So uh, more of her bio. She spent time in India, U.S., Cambodia, Haiti, Africa, working with communities in need, teaching yoga, providing support for child labor, educating people with AIDS, HIV, prevention, sex trafficking. You know, my daughter runs a foundation in Uganda, and she's doing solar and all these things. I know how much energy it takes just to support a school there. I am blown away by all the things you have your hands in and how you can accomplish those. I want to know how you do uh, so much so effortlessly, it seems. Um, she's also the co-founder of the Save a Challenge Humanitarian Tours, which has raised over $4.5 million since 19, 2007 getting the yoga community involved in funding and awareness, raising efforts across the globe. Her self-authored DVDs are available through Gaim and Yoga Journal, as well as her most recent groundbreaking 3D uh, DVD set, uh, Yoga of Awakening Through Sounds True. She's working on her first book. I mean, it's been, I mean, I've known about you forever. It's the first time I've met you and it's so nice to meet you. I've known about you forever. It's so neat that you're writing a book. I, I really can't wait to see um, to read it and uh, you can get more information about Sean at seancorn.com that's s-e-a-n-e-c-o-r-n.com if you want to uh, see her uh, in the next couple of months she's on tour and I promise me after this interview I know you're going to want to uh, embrace her work um, and she's got a tour called Spirit Speak and she's going to be in Arkansas in Blue Yoga in Arkansas in July 28th multi-university in California September 24th uh, Allium in New Jersey, November 5th. I think you're going to be in Kripalu too, right? In August or something? Is that probably, true? yeah. Yeah, probably. Okay, good. So, um, welcome. 
thanks Thank for you. thanks for being here. And uh, like I said, you know, the, the whole point of Ayurveda is to establish being, become perfectly still, but then you must take action from that place. And when you do that, you become more self-aware, self-aware of what's working, what's not working, old patterns of behavior that have, that, that have served us for years, but maybe not serving us for any long. We want to find ourselves doing the same dumb stuff again and again and again. And yoga and Ayurveda were the, the techniques to create the awareness for transformational change. And it's yoga isn't about fitness and flexibility. And Ayurveda is not about healing the body, although they get pigeonholed that way. But these Vedic sciences are truly about transformation. So what I want to do today is I want to dig in to how the mechanism of that transformation how you go from obviously trans, you know, transforming our old yuck on the inside, but then how do we take that to the outside? So I want to, if we could, sort of dial that in for folks, because you know, my audience, is, they've been around for a while. They love Ayurveda. They love the idea of transformation, but I don't know if they've ever heard that from the yoga perspective. So um, off you go. I'd love to hear what you have to say on that. Well, sure. Um, well, first of all, thank you very much for having me. And I appreciate any opportunity to have to talk about this conversation about um, what it means to activate social change, but from the inside out. And what are the tools that we need to utilize in order to self-regulate the central nervous system to be able to be in conflict and in crisis without being reactive to it, yet being very present to the experience as it is. And uh, there's, in the yoga community, there's, can often be a lot of spiritual bypass where we can utilize the languaging of yoga and transformation um, to avoid actually having to be in the experience. And to me, to create change means to engage, but to engage consciously requires tools of self-actualization because we are hardwired to separate, especially when our survival is being challenged or compromised. And so the, the impulse is to create conflict, is to meet fear with fear or rage with rage. It actually energetically feels right because it discharges energy, but it creates more con con uh, conflict, more chaos. So the practice of yoga, the practice of, of, of Ayurveda gives us um, access to resources for that self-regulation so that we can take accountability for our own impulse and make healthier, more integrated choices in our actions. And so for me, I know that I have um, six or seven non-negotiables that I have to commit to each and every day or week Otherwise, my natural inclination is, to, is going to um, retreat, to avoid, to um, isolate. That includes yoga, meditation, prayer, diet, therapy, um, sleep, and play. Play is the last one on my list, so that's why I always tend to forget it. Um, but I know that if I don't commit to those um, habits, those uh, practices, that when I go out into the world, whether it's with my family, in my community, or any kind of social just justice action, 
I will be motivated from my ego rather than from my love. These practices help me to remember what's truly important and to engage from the inside out. Um, and so being involved in action is a natural extension of the practice of yoga because yoga teaches us that everything is interdependent, the same way Ayurveda does, that everything is connected. Um, but this idea of oneness is a mythology until we understand that although we are one, we are also not the same. And our work is to recognize the differences that exist, the ways in which we participate in creating those differences, the ways in which we benefit from those differences. Once we can establish that, we can move towards healing it. But we have to first acknowledge those differences, and that includes racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, ageism, ableism, bias, discrimination. And the avoidance of the shadow means that we're complicit in the actualization of that otherizing. So for me as a social justice act activist, I have to go towards, towards the discomfort, but recognize what it brings up within me and then utilize the tools to allow me to stay more integrated and present no matter what. I can't avoid it. I've got to go towards it. So in the heat of battle, when you're you know, confronted with something that you really can't stand and you are very, very difficult to look at, how do, you, how do you choose door number two as opposed to door number one? And door number one being your reaction to that, which is, you know, in the material world, terrible. But how do you go through door number two, which is the road less traveled, the, the road that you find the compassion, the lack of judgment, the understanding of where they came from? There's an old story that the roses didn't have, uh, they didn't have thorns originally, but they, as a result, and they're edible, right? So they were trampled for years and years. Everybody ate them and trampled them, and one day, one of the roses had an idea and said, what if we grow some thorns? I mean, everybody has thorns and they don't get trampled. And they took a vote and they now have thorns. And, and we find that, uh, and of course, they don't get trampled anymore. And people who grow thorns in their life and become thorny and, and aggressive, uh, oftentimes were trampled in their lives. Mm -hmm. So how do, you, how do you, in the heat of battle, see that you're looking at a rose that has thorns on it that was trampled for many, many years, and that's what you're seeing today. How do you deal with that, and how do you get to door number two, which is that road less traveled? Well, I, I'm gonna answer that question in a, in a moment. I'm gonna backtrack a little bit to, to talk about trauma, which um, the way in which we define trauma is it's anything that overwhelms our capacity to cope and leaves us feeling helpless, hopeless, or out of control. Everyone experiences trauma um, to one degree or another. Now there's shock trauma, which are those unimaginable incidences that happen that take us um, unaware. Then there's also developmental trauma. Those are bullying, a divorce, loss of a loved one. Um, when we experience trauma, there's a, uh, a, a, bio, a biological response to it. Our brain releases chemicals into our body. We go into fight, flight, freeze, or collapse. The moment we go into fight, flight, freeze, or collapse, our bodies contract. It's an a, a organic a survival mechanism. That contraction stores the imprint of that trauma into our biology, into our body. If we were raised in, a, in an environment where we're taught how to discharge that energy, screaming, crying, yelling, uh, communicate. Oop, you okay there? Yeah, we just lost the oh, light. Wow. Now that's trauma. <laughs> that's trauma. Yeah. yeah. 
I think it was. <laughs> wow, mm-hmm. that's never happened before um, in all these years. That's uh, but actually, yeah, actually you're quite good. Fascinating. Yes, <laughs> sorry about that. What happens? Like in that moment, your your body oriented to the uh, to the shock, to the disruption. So in that moment, our brain releases chemicals to prepare us for something. You might get hurt. It could be uh, something else might happen that our body and the unconscious moves towards immediately. So if we're given space to discharge the emotion, it moves through us. But most of us are not given that. So what we're taught in yoga is that everything is energy. That includes rage, shame, fear, guilt, grief. The same with love and happiness, of course. But they're specific vibrations. When the energy of fear, rage, shame, grief, often the same energy associated with trauma, stays in the body, it becomes the tension that we experience. That contraction is tension. It's cumulative. So every time we have a moment of trauma or that takes us by surprise, the body will react instantaneously and continue to contract. When you do yoga, you release the tension by stretching. The emotion comes up to the surface. If we learn how to stay present to the sensation, the sensation can teach us about what's happening underneath the surface. If I can stay present to the discomfort, I can learn how to be in relationship to it. In life, when we come up against uncomfortable emotions, very often we'll be given, we'll we'll use drugs, sex, alcohol, food to anesthetize. On the mat, we don't have access to that but we have our thoughts and our eyesight. But in the process of yoga, we can learn how to stay present to the energy and let it discharge organically and learn our reactivity to the sensation. So to answer your question now, when there's a door one and there's a door two, if I'm going up against door one and I'm not resourced, when I'm not self-regulated, If what's on the other side of that door is something that startles me, triggers me, or causes me to time travel, my body is going to contract, I'm no longer regulated, and I'm going to react to that. My reaction is going to be either power over or power under. I'm either going to try to dominate by being aggressive, assertive, dogmatic, or I'm going to get passive and apologetic and withdrawn. Door two, same situation. But if I'm resourced, I might notice I'm triggered. I might be able to say, oh, my heart is beating. My skin feels flushed. My fingertips are numb. I want to rip their head off. I want to yell. I want to cry. I want to scream. Or I want to withdraw. I'll know that in that moment, I am not in present time. I've actually time traveled to the original assault or trauma. And I have to remind myself to feel my feet on the ground, to breathe, to resource, look around the room, make sure I'm connected and make a different choice. But if I didn't have the sensitivity or rather the self-awareness, I'm going to want, my survival is going to want to attack or withdraw. And so to answer that question, how do, I, how do I change my behavior within door two is through utilizing the skills and the tools that are available, that include Ayurveda, that include yoga, meditation, prayer, therapy, and use them when it actually matters. 
to make sure that I'm breathing and that I, and then later process it, cry, rage, scream, let the crazy voices out, give myself space for the ego, the shadow to speak, not deny it, but I don't let it run the show when it matters. Wow. Wow. So, so what you're saying is you're confronted with door number two, we're opening up door number two instead of door number one, and you stay present. You stay in the eye of the storm. Mm -hmm. I always talk about, there's an old saying in Ayurveda that we try to establish the coexistence of opposites, where you're calm and dynamic at the same time. And of course, the bigger the calm, the more powerful the winds, the more stress we can endure. If we're out there dodging refrigerators in the winds of the storm, we're going to get burned out. Mm-hmm. My, my first book I wrote many, many years ago called Body Minus Four was about nasal breathing exercise. And we did brainwave studies comparing nose breathing versus mouth breathing. And what we found was that when you breathe through your nose, you actually change your brain chemistry to more alpha in the, way, in the brain, more coherence in the brain. And you create that inner calm. And I, as I did some research on some of your work, I, 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 I hear you talk a ton about breathing and how it's transformation. You just mentioned breathing a minute ago how breathing can keep you in that eye of the storm. We published that research in the International Journal of Neuroscience, which was, like, was unprecedented to show that you could produce alpha in the brain during vigorous exercise we did it and create that eye of the storm. I called it the runner's high back then. You know, but what you're talking about, is, and which I love, is using all your six non-negotiables, seven non-negotiables, uh, but also breathing seems to be the very first one. So can you take me through... Um, you know, any tips you can have, how you can help our, our listeners about how to breathe and what the mechanism of that is and how it changes your awareness. So you don't want to kill that person. You can stay in, in that prayer. You can stay separate from this craziness. Absolutely. Well, in the practice of yoga, there's a style, there's a, um, a kind of breathing that we mm. use uh, called Ujjayi Pranayama, which is a right. very deep resonant breath that travels over it travels through your nose, but it is actually drawn in from the vocal cords, from the back of the vocal cords. And so it's a more of a vacuumed breath. And it's the vinyasa flow is very vigorous. It's intensified. But the breathing itself is meant to stay consistent. Long inhales, long exhales. And the, the, on a physiological um, level, of course, the breath is doing a variety of things. Um, uh, Nutrient-rich oxygen enters the body. Each exhale, carbon dioxide leaves the body. You are regulating the central nervous system. Uh, There's so much that you're introducing into our physiology that's going to create more space for not just physiological health, but psychological presence. But in the practice of yoga, we also understand it as prana, as the universal life force. It's the infusion of spirit itself. And so what happens in, uh, more metaphorically, when you're practicing intensely and sensation is coming up, you're going to have a variety of different voices that come up in your head. Archetypes. There's going to be the judger. There's going to be the the competitor, the, the mediator. You know, like bend that knee, stay in the pose, or the victim, like I don't want to, I'm tired. You're gonna, it's part of the process. You can't avoid this. You actually have to be in relationship to these voices and and have some awareness of where they're coming from. 
So the practice itself is very young. It's very dominant on a physiological, psychological level. The breathing allows you to witness. It allows you to be present to all of this dialogue without actually reacting to it. It introduces prana, the universal life force, into the body, cleansing the body, purifying the body, but allowing you to stay present, centered, calm, consistent, even as your body is having one dialogue and your head is having another. So what the breathing allows us to do then in conflict is there's this swirl of energy around you. You just breathe deeply in and out and remain committed to it on a physiological level, something powerful and potent is happening, but also on a spiritual level. It allows us to remain connected. Every molecule breathed by me is gonna be breathed by every single person that exists. It's the one thing that truly binds us in the physical world. When I'm working with someone who might be themselves triggered, activated, what I'm remembering is that they are also experiencing trauma, that they might not have the resources to deal with their trauma, that they are acting out as a result of it, and the only way for them to feel better is to either react to me or withdraw. I can't trust that they're gonna stay regulated. I have to be the one that in that conflict utilizes the deep breathing, utilizes my willingness to understand the impact that breath has, and I've also noticed that when I breathe deeply and I remain grounded, it influences those I'm talking to. It they want me to meet them with the same intensity. But if I keep my tone soft, space between my words and my breath absolutely resonant, eventually they'll meet my rhythm. Not always, but more often than not. So the breath is a skill in which we utilize for our own self-regulation but also to be in relationship with others. Wow, there's an amazing study that um, I wrote about and one of my favorites. They had two groups of people that were giving gifts to people. One hedonistically, where I give you this gift but I sort of hope you like it, hope you like the color, hope, you, hope it fits. And the other one was giving you the gift eudaimonically, which means that I don't really care if you like it, I love you but it's no concern of yours, I have no ex expectation to the outcome, I'm not getting anything in return except I just love the process of giving it to you. And they measured the difference genetically, and they found that when they actually gave with a little bit of a hook, that I hope you like that gift, it actually negatively affected their genetic code. But when I gave it eudaimonically, I just give it to you, I just love giving you this gift. I don't care if you like it. I'm not going to ask you, does it fit? Do you like it? It changed their genetic code in a powerful way. So what you're saying is when you can stay present, and you can breathe, and you stay and keep that, 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 you know, when you breathe ujjayi breath, you're actually creating, when you breathe, your abdominal muscles contract. And we measure what actually happens. Your abdominal muscles contract on your diaphragm. Your diaphragm protects on the vagus nerve in your heart, flips your brain into an alpha state, and you're present. Like you said, I love, you're not time traveling. So that's what the, the breathing does. And then when you can speak from that place, you're so right. People can, they, they genetically, like, you can hack their DNA. I mean, you literally can get in their DNA and access who they truly are and you can interact with them. It's like if you throw a, you know, a, a, someone throws a dart at you and, and, then, and then you throw a dart back, I mean, you know, expect more darts. But if you realize that there are rows that was trampled and you just go and you access your truth and it's something that I, I want you to talk about. You've talked about this and I love this so much about what you talk about, how, how we are fundamentally truth and love. 
And we need to act from that place. And when you act from that place, as you can see, just as science shows, it can change the world one heart at a time. So, so um, I'm curious if you can, you talked about your six, your, your, your non-negotiables and breathing clearly is a massive piece of the puzzle to keep our, our silence and stay present. But then the other tools like yoga and breathing and meditation, are there unique, are unique um, aspects of those individual techniques that change the physiology in a different way that create this like overwhelming massive hurricane that you can then go out there and change the world with, which you obviously seem to be able to pull off. Um, I mean, like, what does yoga do? What does breathing do? What is the, what is the, what are, what are these things doing individually? Cause I think that's what people would love to hear is like, why should I meditate? Cause obviously you know, people meditate, but they really don't, they can't stay with it. How do we motivate them to understand what's really happening so they can stay with this? Well, you know, I think though that the practices meet you where you're at. Uh -huh. um, for some people, it might just getting involved in yoga and breathing and diet is really just for their well-being, their physical well-being, that they're looking to feel more vibrant in their body, um, lose or gain weight, create more mobility. It might just be that. And that's enough. My experience of yoga and all of these practices is that eventually doors open and you're invited to go to another level, not a better level, just a different level within the experience of yoga. So I wouldn't want to suggest to someone that what I'm doing with yoga now is the end all. It would completely discount the, the years of practice where I wasn't uh, integrating in, in social justice and activism where I wasn't utilizing the breath, where I was just doing it to stop doing drugs and alcohol, to eat better. Like way back in the 80s, that's, I had no connection to spirit. My practice for five years was done without prayer, without oming, without namasteing. It was just simply feel better in my body. So if someone's listening and if that's their goal right now, to feel better in their body, the practice of yoga can absolutely, on a physiological level, contribute to your overall physical and emotional and psychological health and wellness. Um, and if you continue the practice and you're open to it, the practice pulls these veils back and begin to expose the core of our wounding. Why we perhaps use food or alcohol or drugs to mask uh, feelings, emotions. The practice brings it to the surface. It doesn't let you bypass. It makes you stand in the discomfort. And that becomes another part of the practice. So for people listening and they're open to deep psychological and emotional healing, these practices can also expose the limited beliefs that keep us attached to our small self and invite us into a deeper level of inquiry about uh, who we truly are and what it is that we're attached to, meaning our ego. And that process is a challenging process. You've got to, you begin to look at all the things that you would really rather ignore, but yoga says, no, you've got to be in relationship to it because that's what yoga is. Right. So the physical practice moves into the emotional practice. And I stayed in that realm for years, having to deal with my trauma, having to deal with, um, yeah the sensations. 
And then another doorway opened that shifted from the me to the we, from the individual to the collective, that there couldn't be a separation, that I couldn't be in relationship with my shadow or my body unless I also turned outward and recognized that I needed to be in relationship to the planet, to humanity, to other species, and that that was the evolution of yoga. So to me, it has these little pathways, one, again, not being better than the other. But if you stay with it, the yoga practice will put in front of you what it is that you need to transcend and open you to God or the truth and love that lives within our authentic essence. When we're tense, shut down, reactive, we block ourselves from that light. When, we're, when we release the contraction and we deal with the emotional suppression, we open ourselves to that essential essence that's within. So as a yoga uh, practitioner, a spiritualist, we're not here to seek because that would suggest that what we're looking for is somewhere out there. What we're doing is waking up, waking up to who we truly are. So the practices help to remove the, the, um, whatever it is that dims that light. And that can be our upbringing, ancestral trauma, um, uh, all sorts of oppression. But once we confront it, reconcile it, feel it, we can then release it and transform it into something that's actually empowered. And then we can look to the world with more empathy. Empathy is the quality of being that changes this world. So we really have to do us first before we can go off the mat. Uh, mm -hmm. so obviously, you know, off the mat into the world. It's in that order for a reason. Um, yeah. There's a couple of sayings that I love in Ayurveda that sort of remind me of what you're saying. One is, um, is that to the extent that something or someone affects you, it's the extent that it's your karma, therefore your opportunity to take transformational action. And the other saying I want you to comment on is that the pain and the fear are directly across from the bliss. And the reason for the pain and the fear is to get your attention. So you can go to the pain, through the pain, and access who you are, and then let who you are out. And who you are out, I think, is that, that completely non-separation part of you, that part that you realize, you're like, oh my gosh, I can't do me anymore because that me is out there too. And so I'd love to hear you comment on that and help people, help folks understand that this is a beautiful journey, and I totally get it. There's no judgment where you're at. I mean, Ayurveda, yoga, it's all like that. You, it, it's like a big buffet. You can take what you need and run with it, but if you stick with a Vedic science, it's going to take you down the road of transformation, and, and you're yes. going to bump up against your pain, and you have to go through it. So any more pearls of wisdom or words of wisdom about how to get through that pain um, what are the action steps to actually get through that pain? Because we talk about action out there, but what's the inner actions we can take? Well, in the practice of yoga, there's, um, there are eight limbs of yoga, and the final limb is samadhi, which is liberation, bliss. That's what we're angling for. We're working right. towards that level of enlightenment. Um, yoga also means to come together and make whole. It recognizes there's no separation. Everything is connected. The, the conflict that exists in the world today exists because it operates on a power dynamic that gives a lot to some, which is dominance or supremacy or power over, and very little to others, which is oppression. Oppression, as we know, leads to violence, leads to desperation, leads to death. Those power dynamics are the opposite of yoga. 
But those power dynamics live within all of us. As long as we have an ego, we, are, we operate on otherizing, on separation. So the first thing that we have to understand that to move towards samadhi, to move towards enlightenment, we have to recognize the ways in which we practice and participate in separation within our own life, within our own experiences. Um, because everything that's happening out in the world is simply a manifestation in what's happening in the individual consciousness. So if I want to change the world, it begins here. What we're taught in, in the practices of, of really uh, spiritual mysticism is that everything happens exactly the way it needs to in order for the soul to transform. That we are here to awaken, to learn what love is, to move towards that samadhi, and it's all dependent upon our karma. Therefore, our soul is going to evolve. Our soul need, knows it needs experience. It's gonna co-create with the universe to magnetize to us all the different lessons or challenges or whatever you wanna call it, that's going to invite our ego into eruption. It's only through that eruption that we can begin to transform it. So it's not a punishment, it's an initiation. Meaning that I can't really learn love until I also understand fear. I can't learn compassion until I also learn to be in relationship with my judgment um, and on and on and on. So the judgment, the fear, the insecurity, the doubt, these are aspects of my ego all learned behavior, all very human and karmic, that I'm being asked to understand their impulse, what they're trying to teach me, what they're resistant to. By working through them is how I open myself to the samadhi, towards a greater understanding. How I do that is through the body. Because the information, the fear, like I said earlier, the shame, the rage, it's all in my cells. So by doing asana, by doing breath work, by doing my prayer work, is all ways for me to get present to my experience, to notice the ways in which I create separation. Who am I still in judgment to? Where am I not seeing the bigger spiritual picture of why things happen as they do? So that I'm no longer the victim, so I'm no longer living in blame, so that I can forgive when it's time, when it's appropriate, so I can cut those caustic, um, uh, threads of energy that connect me to someone else through negativity. When I can do that is when I can begin to develop empathy for my journey and then therefore empathy for someone else's. To me, that's not necessarily enlightenment, but it's empowerment here on earth. Enlightenment's gonna take lifetimes, but empowerment happens the moment we begin to forgive ourselves and each other for thinking that we should have known better. What the practice of spirituality teaches us is that everyone is doing the best they can with what little they know based on the trauma they've experienced and the lack of tools that are available to them. The rate in which someone wakes up is between each soul and the God of their own understanding. All I need to do is to stay on my side of the street, commit everything that I have to all the different practices that I have access to, to noticing the way in which I participate in separation and change it. To me, that's the ultimate action. If I can love myself, love the planet, love each other as one, recognize the moments that I don't, commit to breathing into it, acknowledging it, coming back into my source, I know then when I go out into the world, I'm going to contribute to peace because peace is the inevitable outcome of love. And if I'm being that love, then I'm in service to that peace. 
to me, that's the greatest action that we can do in this lifetime is to show up in love in all that we do say and create because that's God. And that is the pathway to freedom. Wow. Wow. Incredible. You know, there, there's another two sayings that I love that you just, you just keep reminding me of all these sayings. And one is, you know, do less and accomplish more, right? But the extension of that is to do nothing and accomplish everything like the sun like doesn't really seem to be doing a lot, but everything spins around it. everything we're here because of it. And when you come from that place of love, you know, I don't think that's where I don't get a sense that there's any effort there. That's your true nature. It's expanding because that's what we do. Right. Mm -hmm. And what you're talking about is you know, taking away the armor, the resistance, the emotional trauma. So you can actually just be yourself and, and do nothing and literally accomplish everything. So you're really, it's really not that hard, really, when you get to that place. I mean, I'm sort of wondering that maybe that's the secret of why you can actually do nothing, seemingly, looking so healthy and calm, yet be accomplishing everything at the same time with your foundation and everything that you're doing. Talk to me about that, because that's, that's a something that I've, I've always felt like I spent a lot of years wrapping my own head around that and helping my patients kind of figure that out. But I do think it's a very real thing that when you're actually doing the work from your true self, it's effortless. You're not the doer. It's like it's happening spontaneously to you. Does that make sense? Sure. Well, uh, what I know is that I'm in service to something bigger than myself. I know that there's something bigger that's going on that all of us are participating in in our own unique ways. And that I'm being asked to show up and to use certain qualities of my personality to serve that. But this is not about me but I am being required to bring the fullness of me into it. But I also believe that it changes and that you have to know your, your, your systems. My nervous system is set up in such a way that I can operate on a high level of stress without burning out. It's been that way for a very long time. If someone else stepped into my body and tried to do or accomplish some of the things that I accomplish in the environments that I go into, their nervous system might not be able to manage that energy. They're not then, therefore, they're not best used there. Their right. nervous system might be used elsewhere in a different way. Doesn't make it less important. It's just knowing who you are, but it also right. changes. So I know that as I'm getting older, um, there might be shifts in my natural energy where that's no longer sustainable for me. So I look towards what is sustainable and the way in which you show up to it and really uh, serve that self-care to keep your energy body consistent. So I accomplish a lot because, like I said, my nervous system uh, contains it. Um, but I could probably personally, I could use more balance. I have no doubt in my mind that my body at this age, at this stage, could use some shifts and I'm open to that in the same way. I'd want to encourage anyone who's listening to allow for that natural ebb and flow to really learn to listen to their bodies so that they can show up at their best. I don't serve the world if I'm burnt out because if I'm burnt out, I'm angry. I'm in, I'm already intense, but I'm intense grounded. You don't want to see me intense deregulated. And I know that that's what will happen if I burn out. I'll go to that place. So I have to make sure that I'm committed to those non-negotiables so that I can bring all my skills to the table. But when it no longer is in service, if I'm 
if I'm not bringing the best of me, then I need to step back and create space for someone else to come forward who might have that resource within their own nervous system. So to me, I, like I said, I do all my non-negotiables. Commit to therapy is very important to me to be in a space of processing so that I can understand for myself what I can do, what I can manage, and what I can't. And not to self-beat when I have to let go of things because I don't think I'm any longer in service to it. So that's really my answer to that. I think it's something that's, uh, you know, I know that I have uh, the capacity to create a lot, um, but that is very normal to me, even pre-yoga. Um, I just operate on a lot of energy. Yeah. And I think that, you know, everyone, a lot of people, particularly in the West, life has become a struggle. You know, we feel exhausted at the end of the day. And, you know, whether we're off the mat and changing the world, and I think you do carry a huge capacity. But like you said, it's, 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 it's that buffet. Everyone has, can take the piece of that individual pie and use yoga to help make their life not feel the struggle. And if you have a life that is not a struggle, you can find that peace and calm. And from that peace and calm, you can have the awareness and then slowly chip away at what's making you maybe more miserable or affected or emotionally reactive in your life, right? One of the tools that Ayurveda uses sort of in the big way is a, a sattvic lifestyle, a lifestyle that is peaceful, loving, giving, kind. Uh, we now know that the microbes that are good love a sattvic lifestyle. We know that the microbes that are bad really, really thrive on stress and energy. And the microbes change our mind, right? That's how it works now. And now we know that. And that was also written about in the Vedic texts a few years ago, the Krimni, which are the original microbes that they discovered thousands of years ago, talked about them in detail and, and how a sattvic lifestyle was created to create a good stable of bugs that have energetic effects on how we think, behave, and function in this world. And, and uh, so, so from a sattvic lifestyle, are there any top tips in terms of your daily routine, your lifestyle, diet, things that you can share that, would, that are like important for you to keep that sattvic good bug lifestyle thing going? Well, when I get on my yoga mat in the morning, um, I, in front of my yoga mat, I'll usually place items that I want to connect to. Um, I want my sadhana to be really connected and committed to something beyond myself. So it might be a picture of my mother. It might be elements of nature. It might be a, a clipping that I saw in the newspaper that's, uh, that I want to bring energy to. Right. Then I put my palms into namaste and I dedicate every movement and every breath of that practice to something other than my own healing. Okay. So it could be to someone who needs healing, someone I need to forgive or needs to forgive me or hope to forgive me. Uh, it might be to a situation that's happening uh, um, nationally, planetarily. And then every movement and every breath that I do in that practice is in dedication to that, that, that other energy. So my body becomes a prayer. So I'm practicing um, service, uh, a ritual in my body from that first moment. Then I trust that I'm going to get all the byproducts of the practice, cleansing, purification, you know, all of that. But something else, it connects me to something bigger. It connects me, my energy body, with the divine, and then the divine to uh, another entity or energy. That, to me, is what creates a sense of peacefulness 
centeredness and purpose in my body that prepares me for the rest of the day. So I go through my body, I, or my practice, I breathe, I ground, um, and then I show up in the world. And the world is going to, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to do what it does. We can't predict that. But I can make sure that I'm utilizing these skills so that I show up more awareness. My diet is also very important to me. I don't want to put into my body anything that's going to make me lethargic, heavy, dense, um, uh, pulled back or withdrawn within my cellular structure. I want foods that are going to be vibrant, healthy, and the pranic content super high because that's going to also impact my ability to be in the world in a more sacred way. So I want to experience the sacred within myself, but also the sacredness in all things. Doing that first thing in the morning is what sets the tone for the rest of the day. And so my practice starts early in that capacity and allows me to find that deep inner peace. Doesn't mean I'm not going to get triggered. I got an ego and I'm in human form. But it does mean that I'll stay in that trigger for a shorter amount of time. That instead of three days feeling overwhelmed and anxious and angry, it might be a half an hour. And then I'll resource, ground, breathe, reflect, and bring myself back into that state in which you're saying that's more connected to source, more peace-filled, and peaceful. But for me, it includes being of service, even in my practice. Without being of service, I feel like it's only for the me. And although I'll benefit, it's not the whole picture. Service allows me to connect beyond me and allows me to see my purposefulness in this world, feel that union. And so to get into that, into that state, I need to know that I'm a part of something bigger than my small self. Did you just discover that? Like, you know, a lot of people feel like, I don't have time to give service. I don't have time to care for others. I just can barely hang on to myself. And then all of a sudden you start giving and caring for others. And obviously something changed inside of you. Can you talk about how, how you know, that ego needs love, yet our, our nature is to be love. Mm-hmm. And when you're doing that, um, that service that we're all sort of afraid of giving the time and getting wrapped up in busy, busy, more busy things in our busy, busy life. How, how did you discover that that was actually something that fed you on a different level and it wasn't the time-consuming, effortful thing that I think a lot of people think it is? Mm-hmm. Well, my pathway back into service, because in the, in the past, it was done in a very unhealthy way when I was young because I didn't have any resources. So it was very reactionary. But when I got back into service, which would have been in the 90s, um, I went into a, I was working in a shelter called Children of the Night in Van Nuys, which uh, houses, educates, um, rehabilitates children who've been sex trafficked. And it's a place of a lot of trauma. And I went in there very idealistic. I'm going to be of service. I'm going to help people. It'll be all wonderful. It was horrible. The kids were intense and they were rude and they were disruptive and disrespectful. And I left that place vowing to never go back. And I had all this judgment come up in me about the kids, about the system, about the the, the shelter. What I realized in that moment was that what happened when I walked into that environment is that I met my disowned self. I met my shadow. I'm intense. I'm disruptive. I'm, I have issues with authority. I'm disrespectful. But when I met it, my first impulse was to run from it. And it made me realize that I run from that part of myself, that I've been in avoidance of that part of my nature. 
And again, yoga told me like, no, you've got to be in a relationship to it. You've got to go towards this. So I went back to that shelter reluctantly, worked with those kids. It didn't get better at first. You know, it was very uncomfortable. But eventually I realized that I wasn't afraid of their rage and their anger. I was afraid of their grief because I hadn't touched my own. And th those children became my teacher. They were in service to my development. So it was an exchange. And for me, service has always been that way. I go out into the world to serve because what gets reflected back to me is my own humanity again and again and again. And in those experiences, I'm invited to step up my game, to love bigger, to find more compassion by seeing the places where there's still resistance. And by learning in this way, by being able to, in the past, meet that grief, meet my own, it, I cultivated a level of gratitude that I never had before and empathy for my own journey. So that when I serve, it's, it, it's not that it's not challenging. There is still a lot of service that I do. It's very, very challenging. But I'm so grateful that I get to, that I get to use my resources, my platform, my privileges to raise awareness, to support someone else in their experience. Um, I can't believe that I've been given these skills and gifts over a lifetime. Um, it feels like I have an emotional responsibility to share in this capacity because it's, a, it's energetic abundance. And unless you express the abundance outward, you stop the flow of energy. So for me to be of service means that I keep that flow going. And so, yeah, yes, it can be challenging. I don't want to suggest it's always joyful. But that gratitude that I have for being able to do this work, for being able to wake up in which I'm being allowed to, it feels essential that I turn towards the world and support the world in whatever way I can to wake up to who they truly are. And so for me, service is yoga. It's everything to me in whatever way I can contribute to it. It's not separate from the way that I live my life. It is my life. And so I think people have to do, if they're really interested in going out and changing the world, the first act of service is changing yourself being committed to a personal practice, noticing the ways in which we create those problems, those, those separations, and engage in transforming it. Then service moves from the individual to the collective. It's a natural expression. Uh, it's a natural part of the yoga. So, yeah, that's really how I'd answer that question. Like, you know, again, I don't want to suggest that it's always joyful. Because it's just not, you know, when you're going up against people's triggers, when there's organizations to run and you're dealing with fundraisers and money and all that stuff, it's problematic, but it's also spiritual. So I will learn more about myself in that process by living in, this, in these experiences than anywhere else. And that's really where the growth happens. And if someone else gets something from my efforts, thank God for it. But I know how much I get from being in that process. So talk to me how you, how you deal with attachment. I mean, you, you know, how do we not be attached to the fruits of those actions? I mean, obviously you're doing so much and there's a, it could be a tendency to go, wow, look at what I've created, look at all these wonderful things. But, but you know, when we start getting attached to that and we get attached to the reward chemistry that we get from that, then we can quickly become addicted to that. 
So how can you yes. help people understand how to do all this incredible work, but not be attached to those fruits? Sure. Um, it's difficult. I, yeah. I'd be lying if I didn't say I was attached to my service. The end result of my service means safety, health, happiness for other people, especially young people. I'm very attached to children yeah. not being abused. I'm very attached to children having access to resources. I'm very attached to the end of racism and sexism and homophobia um, and on and on. Um, I'd be lying if I didn't say I had an attachment to it. What, is that a uh, thing though? Is that a, is that a thing that you're sort of striving to do the work in the same fullness and capacity, but not to be attached but to, the, to, the, to the outcome as much? It's part of my own spiritual practice to okay. recognize that there's something bigger that's going on here. Yeah. I don't know someone else's journey or circumstance or karma. I don't know, uh, I, I can't control the outcome of any of the efforts that I do <clears throat> yeah. as much as I want to. But, so it's in my prayers to trust that there's something bigger that's happening and all I can do is show up 100% in service to my efforts yeah. and pray for the peace of mind to accept the outcome as it is. This is a daily prayer, but I'd be lying if I, didn't, if I said I didn't struggle with this. I don't walk around the world doing stuff and just casually saying I have no attachment to the end result. That would be a lie. There's a shadow that has to be identified. What I don't attach myself to though is the praise and the reflection that I get in doing deeds that are positive and good. That is something that I do not attach myself to at all, that I work very hard not to move towards that identification, that I recognize that that is a slippery slope, that is a trap. And so I don't get attached to that part of it at all. Um, if I succeed at something, great. If I fail at something, wonderful. It doesn't determine my value or self-worth. My attachments go more towards wanting freedom and happiness and safety for other people and yeah. going through a lot of hurt internally when that doesn't happen. Uh, or if I create harm, which I can do easily because you just do. And so those are the kinds of attachments that I wish I could say I was beyond it. I'm not. Um, but I work with, with, with it, the shadow of it, and trying to transcend it. Yeah. I get the sense that you, that you sort of even subconsciously have just, you found so much work to do and you give so fully that you're so involved in doing all of these things that in the reward chemist ward department, that's, that's not on your radar. It's just, what can I do here? What can I do here? What can I do here? And it's sort of not on your radar, but it's sure it's not. I mean, I think that uh, anybody would have, you know, a sense of purpose and, and attachment to the outcome when you see when you're trying to right so many wrongs. It's just that, can you, I see in my daughter, she fights these wrongs and she's so vigilant about it. And I keep, and I showed her one of your videos and I said, you, it was one of the videos where you talked about how you were looking at us at a, at a pimp and, and how you were just so angry. And, and my daughter's right up against a lot of that and, and, and how you found that way to find peace and love and how critically important it is for her not to become part of that problem and stay in yeah. peace yet, because it can take her out. And obviously, you know, that, you know, the difference between door number one, door number two, you know, uh, it's just phenomenal. I think your, your message, your, your work, um, you know, uh, I just want to thank you so much for, for uh, what you're doing. It's, it's powerful. And how you've discovered it 
through the work, through the practice. It's not like someone teacher came and said, here's what you should do. You did it, you know, from the ground floor up and you discovered this Vedic journey in a way that very few do. And you're teaching it in a way that very few do. And I'm so grateful for you. There's one question I want to ask, and I want to talk about your foundation real quick um, before we go. Um, I was fortunate enough years ago to meet George Harrison and the Beatles, and I asked him, if you were to come back in another life and do this again, would you do it? Would you be a Beatle? And he looked at me and he said, no way. There's no way I would do this again. He goes, it's too risky. It's too risky because the, the, you've talked about how your platform is so big and how powerful it is. And, you know, and for him, that platform was so big and so powerful because I got lucky. I was able to find spirit in that journey. He goes, but, you know, everybody else that I know didn't, and they paid a big price. He goes, I don't know that if I could come back again in this life and actually find that spirit, that road less traveled again, I was very fortunate. And he said, no, I wouldn't choose to do that. So I'm asked for, so that question to you, would you choose to come back and be Sean Corn again, doing the same thing? Um, well, if I had a chance to do something else, I've done, I've done Sean Corn, you know? Okay, all right, there you so go. So it's like, you know, I kind of know the ins and outs of this particular incarnation. It would be kind of fun to do something else, but if I had to come back and do it again, you know, I've had a really blessed and very privileged life on so many levels. And yeah. the older I get, the more aware of that. And I, you know, I, I didn't have a formal education. I wasn't raised with a lot of money. That's not the kind of privilege I'm talking about. Yeah. But I've had access to spiritual resources at a very young age that allowed me to have an intense appreciation for the world and to believe in God and to have that spiritual connection and to have a joyful life. Um, that's better than most people will get in this lifetime because of all the separation, because of all the bias and prejudice. I don't suffer from that. And I feel that I get to wake up and create. I get to make things happen. I have the platform, the resources, and the opportunities to do that. Life doesn't get much better than that. That's the reward for me. I get to wake mm -hmm. up so grateful and in love with my family, with my relationships, with the planet. That's a really, I'm, I know that I'm fortunate. And if I had to come back into this body and live another fortunate, blessed life like that, that's grateful and joyful, that gets to help people, I'd be okay with that. Um, but my hope is that I get to, you know, I'd like to go to another level and do other things and have a different experience. Um, but this yeah. one's been pretty, a pretty, a pretty blessed one. I'm grateful. Yeah. You're doing amazing work. And I think if you could come back, I think we would all hope that you would do exactly the same thing again, because, uh, it's, uh, it's a very important role that you play. Thank um, you. Your, your, your foundation, um, you know, um, off the on the mat into the world talk to me about that how can people get to know more about that how can people get involved also um yoga votes is that still a thing that you're working with yeah sure um, yeah so talk to me about all this all that that you're doing i think everybody would love to hear more about that off the mat into the world is a nonprofit leadership development organization it does a variety of things but one of the things that we're committed to most is training people how to bridge the gap between yoga transformation <laughs> social justice and action how to be able to actually go out into the world using these sustainable t tools to aggregate the energy within their community to focus on social justice issues. That can include anything from environmental injustice to, uh, to politics, um, wherever, whatever it is that calls your heart, animal rights. But we give people the tools to be able to do this. Um, 
What we also do is engage with different social actions that are happening on the ground, and that includes politics. So we're very interested in encouraging people within the yoga community to hold their leaders accountable, to understand the issues that exist, to vote, to run for office, to turn towards the toxicity of politics because anything that affects the health, the welfare, the sustainability of any of our citizens, citizens, either nationally or worldwide, is yoga. And so if there's a disruption in that wellness, then we've got to change it. So our leaders must be held accountable and we must know what our own values are and elect people into office that mirror those values. So we engage the yoga community in conversations around politics, help them to understand where the um, different politicians stand on values that are important to us and to encourage people to step into political leadership and vote. Um, we also, what we're doing right now is learning and listening tours, which I'm really um, very excited by. I just got back from South Dakota just a few days ago where we did a listening and learning tour, working with Cheyenne and Lakota leadership, historians, um, activists, uh, uh, spiritualists, to teach us the real American history, to understand the impact of systemic oppression, um, both historically and in present time. And uh, we would spend all day listening to these leaders, understanding the impact of this trauma, and then we would process it. At the end of the day, we do yoga, we would have, be in communication to see what comes up. In October, we're doing one called Race in America, where we'll be learning from slavery to civil rights to the progressive movements of the day, working with different leaders um, within the African-American community, um, including working with ex-white supremacists to understand white supremacy and white dominance. And then again, processing it, really understanding like what did we reject? What did we, um, uh, what made us angry, scared, overwhelmed, shut down. Doing these learning and listening tours are a way for us to uh, be present to our his the historical information that lives within us that is contributing to un or rather unacknowledged bias and prejudice and discrimination that exists within all of us. So it's another way for us to mature our leadership within the yoga community. So that's our newest program. We're also gonna be going to Israel and focusing on the Israeli and the Palestinian crisis, working with leadership there who are the peacekeepers, who are doing reconciliation work and healing work around that trauma. So learning and listening right now is more important to me than what we've done in the past, which is to raise a lot of money to do incredible projects around the world I'm not interested in that right now. I might go back to that. We want to right now raise awareness and education within the community, um, mm -hmm. just to mature leadership. So these are some of the things that we do. And we offer online trainings as well. We offer justice pricing, which makes it accessible to people who don't have access uh, or the funds to be able to afford uh, these trainings. And we have a faculty of a very broad and diverse group of people who are doing extraordinary work around anti-racism, um, uh, uh, all sorts of different kind of bias trainings that people might be interested in, in learning more about. Wow. Well, I think, you know, working in foundations is always tricky, right? Because you give them, if you give them things, then 
they take it. Um, I have a, we have a foundation we work with in India working with endangered herbs and things like that. And it's very difficult to not have them become, you know, dependent on what we're giving them and, and trying to motivate them to actually do the work. So it's always very, very tricky, but giving and heightening awareness, I mean, that's where it all starts, right? So I think you're, you're capturing the fort here by going to enhancing awareness, which is a wonderful evolution of your work. It's just beautiful. Um, so Sean, thank you so much for, for this, for your time. I know you're very, very busy. I really, truly appreciate it. I think what you've said here today, you know, is going to really open the hearts and minds of a lot of people who are listening to what you're doing and hopefully bring a lot of our Ayurvedic people to you. And I encourage all of you to watch a lot of her videos. She tells amazing stories, as you can tell. Um, but I'm glad we were able to kind of, kind of dig in deep a little bit today and kind of and find out exactly what makes this incredible work that you're doing tick and how and what makes you tick because everybody I think is really interested in that. So once again, thank you so much for your time. I hope to see you on the trail along the way and meet you in person. Yeah. But it was really an honor. Yeah, thank you so I much. I hope so too. Thank you very much. It was an honor yeah. to be able to speak with you and, and yeah. especially in this particular forum. So I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. I'll send you a bill for the light bulb. <laughs> that, that you blew <laughs> <Awesome>. up. <laughs> thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you.